I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Crypto Twitter is more than a slogan, it is an experience. With a couple of taps on your smartphone, you can see the latest from some of the biggest names in the industry and watch them opine publicly about their investments, predictions, lawsuits, and more. Influential voices can come from pretty much anywhere as well, from people living in their mom's basement to Elon Musk. And as in social media more generally, there's more than a fair share of humor, hyperbole, brilliance, and even self-righteousness. Indeed, crypto Twitter is not like anywhere else in the Twitterverse. There's just no comparable energy or profile in crowdfunding, microfinance, or cybersecurity. In fact, it's a space where even the former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey himself has chosen to weigh in regularly. Which brings up lots of questions. Like, why does crypto like Twitter? Why not LinkedIn or Facebook? And does Twitter change the nature of conversations that one has in the cryptoverse? And if so, what are the consequences? Especially as crypto advocates and critics congregate to talk not only about investing, but also policy. Well, to answer these and other questions, I have Lana Swartz, a professor in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia here with me today. She's a superstar author of the just-released book, New Money, How Payment Became Social Media, and we'll be taking a philosophical look under the hood at crypto Twitter and what it means for the future of digital assets. Lost generation, fast-paced nation, world population confront they frustration. The principles of true hip-hop have been forsaken. It's all contractual and about money-making. Ah, what they do is the question, a classic from the roots, and I suspect we're about to embark on a classic episode of the show. Lana, it's so great to have you on the beat. Yeah, it's great to be here. First, let's start with some definitions. I am, after all, a law professor. Uh, What is crypto Twitter, and how do you understand the phenomenon and its very origins in crypto, especially as as a scholar for media studies? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you're a lawyer, so you go to definitions. I'm more of a, you know, media studies scholar, so what I tend to do is go to history. Um, And when I go to history... What I think about is how, you know, in many ways, crypto started off or, you know, was envisioned as a free software project, right? Like, and, um, you know, a bunch of people coming together to try to build a new kind of digital payments or digital, you know, digital cash or digital gold system, depending on your perspective. Um, And, you know, in in science and technology studies, we have a way of talking about free software projects um, through the lens of what we call a recursive public. And what that means is that um, it's a group of people who come together, who both build systems collaboratively without any like real hierarchy, um, but also talk about it. And so it's a recursive public because it's a place where, you know, you build something, you talk about it, you build something, you talk about it. And there's this like active recursion where the the talking impacts the building and vice versa. And it's a way of of doing collective work together um, that that really doesn't require, you know, a command and control um, model or one of these, you know, various like um, project management models. Um, This is all kind of like worked out together. And for the most part, free software projects and much like, you know, Bitcoin um, and other cryptocurrencies were often confined confined to like message boards 
servs and listservs. And these were like the places, the, technolo the, the technological and communication environment where those recursive publics happened. Um, and so, you know, we can kind of think about free software as primarily a technical thing, but we also need to think of them as a communication thing. You need email, you need a message board, you need a communication technology in order to make the programming happen and really vice versa. Um, but, you know, money and money technology is a special kind of thing. And one of the ways that money is special is that it is a creature of network effects. You really have to have massive scale for money to function in terms of like speculative value, but also use value. You know, if you're the only person or you're only part of a small community who uses payment systems, then they're pointless. There's no, there's no need for it to exist at all. Um, it wouldn't work at all. Um, so I think that, you know, crypto as we know it today, like really emerges from and is, a, you know, dependent upon the communication environment that we live in. And within that communication environment, Twitter is like really, really, really important. Um, it's the only way that crypto could scale up. That's really interesting. And I, and I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective. I mean, when you think about even the origins of Bitcoin, starting in 2008, you have uh, a link to Satoshi Nakamoto's famous white paper on, on Bitcoin posted to a cryptography mailing list. And then you have a subsequent uh, development and release of the software as open source code. And you see what is uh, at least very much initially inherently a social project of sorts. And then fast forward uh, literally uh, months and you start to have a more robust conversation about it on social media. And then for you to tie that not so much to the functionality of social media, but to the very nature of this particular money project. I mean, well, that's uh, really quite insightful. Um, so, so let's then, uh, well, I guess stick to social media for a moment, and then we'll get to the question of money. But maybe you can add a little bit about why this recursive community, as you describe it, would find its home in Twitter. I mean, why not LinkedIn or, or even Facebook? Yeah, well, I mean, so Twitter, as a communication studies scholar, a media technology scholar, you know, what I really look at is I look at the affordances and constraints of any one given communication system or communication platform. And Twitter has some interesting ones. So it is um, public. You know, you don't have to be logged in to look at someone's Twitter feed. I mean, you can set, you know, your account to private or followers only or whatever. But for the most part, it's meant to be public. It was imagined initially as a quote unquote microblogging software, if you can imagine that. Um, and your the links don't go both ways. So in order to be your Facebook friend, you, we, you have I have to friend you. You have to accept me. But on Twitter, those links can go one way. You know, you can have, and in fact, it's desirable to have way more followers than people you follow. Um, another, some other attributes of it is that it's you know um, really high temporality. Conversations happen really fast. They happen 24 hours a day. It lives on your phone. Initially, it was designed as a phone-based platform that you texted to um, on your, you know, late stage feature phone. Um, so there are a lot of elements that of that, um, those set of affordances and constraints that, that make it perfect for crypto to kind of emerge on and, and, and use. So, you know, um, when the conversations around Bitcoin were just happening on message boards and listservs. You never really, as I mentioned, got to that network effect. And Twitter lets those ha conversations happen in public. You're having a conversation with one other person, but it's in front of an audience. 
Um, and also, of course, you can address that audience. Um, and then those conversations are highly portable, right? They can be, you know, if there's a big thread or a big argument, they can then become um, you know, shared on other platforms. They can then become news stories unto themselves. Um, so it's a way of having these recursive public conversations, but doing so in a way that is happening in front of an, of an interested audience. Um, and so, and it also is like kind of a clout machine. So, you know, how many likes you have, how many followers you have, how many retweets you get, which allows you to sort out the kind of clout and sort out who and who are not the quote unquote important voices. Um, and then of course, the, that interactivity, those likes and retweets and all that, move the needle on how the algorithm promotes those kinds of conversations and like what you actually see and what you don't see. Um, so, and, and I do think that that like, that high speed temporality, that feeling of getting likes, that rapid fire 24 hour conversation is highly gratifying and well matched to those within crypto who are more of the like speculative adrenaline junkie types. Um, there are a lot of aspects of Twitter itself that make it the perfect place for kind of Twitter or crypto to emerge from and also for it to be dependent on. You know, as, as someone who, who used to be uh, also a humanities scholar, uh, you know, I, I kind of look at Twitter and I, and I think to myself, it reminds me of sort of 19th century aphorisms, right? So like at one point in time in the 19th century, there are these really short sort of little sayings and they were like all the rage, you know, back, back in the 19th century. And it's like, they were popular for all kinds of reasons. It didn't take too much effort necessarily to write them. There, there can be a lot of wisdom or foolishness packed into them. Uh, Nietzsche was actually quite fond of aphorisms, but uh, in any event, they were easily produced and could create their own form of infotainment of sorts. And uh, I see for sure echoes of that when I scroll down my crypto Twitter feed at times, um, again, with some really big names and celebrities participating. Yeah, I mean, the whole like recursive public thing, you know, the word public comes from the idea of the public sphere, which was documented or described by Jürgen Habermas to imagine a time in the you know, early modern era where educated people came together in a third place, like a coffee shop to like read the hyper-partisan newspapers of the day and discuss them. Of course, that's idealized and, you know, using it as like a model for what like democracy should be is kind of problematic in many, many ways, both because it like historically may not have happened in precisely that way. But nevertheless, it's essentially that Habermasian public happening with viewers and happening in a way that leaves a permanent document of those, you know, you had a real great zinger at the coffee shop, but now it's a, a permanent tweet that can circulate all around the internet and news stories can be written about it. Just, you know, uh, for the record, for the history of this, of, of our mini FinTech Beat uh, uh, audience, uh, you know, just just to know, the only time we've actually mentioned philosophy was uh, once uh, talking about Immanuel Kant with Nick Carter. But now, you know, uh, congratulations, you are now our second guest to actually get into not only naming a philosopher twice, but but making sure that it's Habermas and then using the word Habermasian. So, you know, uh, you know <laughs> congratulations. We're on FinTech. We really like to give our listeners something new. Um, well, one thing I want to just mention that you, I think is really spot on is the big names and like the logic of fandom and fandom as an emerging like key identity to people's lives. I mean, my husband's from Boston for better or worse. He identifies as a member of Red Sox Nation. And that is kind of a nation. Like it is a way of really imagining yourself. And, you know, we look at people like 
um, you know, Nicki Minaj for better or worse, or, you know, lots and lots of, of with her, you know, barbs, um, lots of members of, you know, fandoms see themselves as that, like, that is like who they are. And we can't really get away from the fact that that kind of stand culture is a key driver in crypto, whether it is for someone like Vitalik or someone like Elon Musk, as you mentioned. Um, and we kind of need to take seriously that as like an identity formation and all of that happens on Twitter and through Twitter. Um, and if you look at the mentions of anyone, like one of those guys, Jack Dorsey, Elon Musk, Vitalik, um, you'll see some, some very strange comments that like really speak to the power of fandom in 2021. So then what are the trade-offs to celebrity culture? I mean, many people have obviously criticized Twitter because of the constraints in terms of the links of the posts that are permitted. Um, but is there anything else you find notable given the social nature of the platform? So, I mean, I think another important aspect of crypto Twitter is that it's highly, highly polysemic, which means in like, that's a fancy media studies way of saying that there's any one thing can mean a lot of different things depending on who's reading it. And so what that means for this is that there's a lot of, I don't know if I can say this on your podcast, but a lot of shit posting. <laughs> and that kind of like memefied, irreverent, um, are they joking? Are they not joking? Aesthetics that would never really have been taken seriously in like the traditional financial firms of, you know, um, you know, the 20th century is the aesthetic that like powers Twitter. And that meaniness has, in fact, I would say, infected mainstream finance. It has infected um, mainstream politics. And that kind of like sitting in the ambiguity of whether you're supposed to take something seriously and, you know, lay down your life at the altar of Nicki Minaj or Elon Musk or whatever your, you know, uh, fandom of choices, um, whether you really believe that, you know, your main identity is being a GME ache or a, you know, Ethereum person, um, that might be, you know, one of the main ways we know how to like do collective life right now, that like strange ambiguity of seriousness and not seriousness, um, which I think also speaks to the fact that, you know, we, you mentioned that, you know, we have this like policy fintech Twitter, we have speculation fintech Twitter, we have, you know, developer fintech Twitter, but we also have like chill pump and dump bot crypto Twitter. And that is absolutely an important part of it. Um, you know, it's, it's really a space where you can pump up the latest meme coin um, and get attention for it. Like these meme coins wouldn't exist. There wouldn't be a market for them if there wasn't a way to get the information out there. So you're obviously bringing up this other aspect that uh, because of the digital nature of the platform, uh, it can be manipulated. And I'm guessing uh, this isn't just a price issue. It really is a, a larger informational challenge as well. It's also really important to remember, and as a media studies scholar, I always have to emphasize this, that we can never take Twitter as a proxy for public opinion. It's like if, if media studies scholars who study Twitter could like put a bullhorn alert out for one thing, it would be this. Um, I mean, we, we always have to remember that literal Russian troll accounts have wound up in mainstream news sources as these kind of Vox Popula, Man on the Street interview indicators of what Americans like really think. And bots really have the ability to move the conversation, to make hashtags trend, and can truly have what we, you know, communication scholars call a cultivation effect, where you get the sense of what, what reality is and what the range of possibilities are available um, 
uh, and, and like what makes sense in it in, in your world. Um, so you have, if that's what's happening in politics, you can only imagine what's happening in, in crypto in terms of like moving the needle on the value of any one given, you know, crypto token. I also think it's crucial to remember that, you know, Twitter is only one piece of the puzzle um, of this communicative world. So depending on your position of it all, you know, group chats, discords, and even like these old school email lists and, you know, forums are where the real action is happening. You know, whether you're having those like real conversations about um, developing a system or if you're like getting, trying to get closer to the, you know, epicenter of a pump and dump so you can get in and out on a meme coin, meme coin without, you know, you know, being the, the, the bag holder. Um, so it is really about Twitter, but it's also about the whole ecosystem. And I would argue that if it weren't for this kind of complex and variegated uh, communication ecosystem, I don't think we would have twi- crypto as such um, as we know it today. Well, well, in your book, you know, uh, and, and this is, I think, a really useful sort of um, transition, right? I mean, because ultimately, whether or not you're talking about social media uh, or or money, you're talking about different kinds of of communities, right? You know, and 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 scaling. And you know, in your book, uh, you have this totally fascinating view of money, where you're describing it as a as money itself as a communication technology that creates and and sustains invisible and, and often um, exclusive communities. Uh, maybe c- can you explain, you know, the big idea here and 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 where does then social media uh, come into the picture when, when thinking about uh, this particular concept of money? Yeah, so, you know, I study the social media of money, but I also study money as a kind of media. If you look back at the the history of money, you know, even just in the modern era, every step along the way, it matches the the technologies of money match alongside the technologies of communication more broadly. Um, So, you know, in the early nation state era, when nation states began to issue um, state issued currency, that was happening at the same time as the emergence of the printing press. And when newspapers themselves were really, you know, leading people to imagine themselves as part of a nation state. Um, and so, you know, these paper money is a form of paper media that is covered with iconography, iconography of the nation state. It tells a shared history um, to a largely illiterate people that allows them to imagine themselves as, you know, a member of that, of that history and also project that history into some kind of like shared future and like produces a nation state as a community of, of shared fate. You know, moving forward, many of the same, um, many of the the biggest, you know, consumer financial service aid, uh, companies like American Express and Wells Fargo started off as postal companies. You know, moving information, but also you know, banknotes and bullion across the rapidly expanding United States. Um, the very same computers that were used to build the early internet were used to build the Visa Mastercard networks, and some of the same people were involved in the production of both of those systems. Um, and, uh, you can still hear like modem noises coming out of the back of like certain, you know, ATMs and like sketchy bars. (laughs) So, um, and of course now, you know, social media is trying to do money and money is trying to do social media. Um, so if we think about transactions as literally transactions, moving across, um, you're moving value from one account to another, that is communication. And as a person who studies the technologies of communication systems, 
I'm interested in looking at the communication systems that move money around and thinking about what kinds of meaning and politics they have. Um, and so I've argued, like you said, this kind of idea of transactional communities, that people who use the same money form, who use the same monetary media, could be considered a community in that they're communicating with each other with money. Um, and I think about going way, way back, I think about these, you know, people, um, you know, in in the ancient world, you know, near the border of Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, um, called the Indo-Greeks. And we only know that those Indo-Greeks exist or ever existed because we found their coins, right? We found coins that have both, um, you know, Indian iconography and Greek lettering. And we know where they were because we can map out where their coins were found. So they left behind you know, no written record, no monuments, no other real archeological um, uh, evidence, but their coins. And, and so in this way, this kind of the transactional community of the Indo-Greek world sort of reveals itself. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in history, but I'm also interested in, you know, what's emerging. Um, and so I'm, I'm really curious about what kinds of transactional communities, you know, if, if we imagine that like we're leaving the mass media era, which may have been, you know, state issued currency moved around by a few large organizations, mostly like Visa MasterCard, um, and like ACH, which is for a public infrastructure. And now we're moving to a much more niche, much more complicated, much more variegated social media money world and therefore niche variegated and complicated you know transactional communities you know what does that mean and what are the maps and contours of what's emerging that's really super interesting and and you know just when you think about a blockchain and you look at the different kinds of consensus mechanisms and you think about questions of governance right and I mean, the, the question of governance itself presupposes a kind of a community and by the way that that question in and of itself creates all kinds of interesting legal questions, uh, you know, for, for us lawyers to learn from uh, uh, the, the, the scholars uh, really researching these issues in, in our culture. One of the really interesting questions then is, if you're using money, is the next question that, you know, policy and other regulators ask, and it's interesting to have a cultural perspective as well, as to what does interoperability mean in between these sort of money systems and money communities? You know, um, <laughs> I also think that, you know, it's interesting to look at these transactional communities from the point of view of user research or user experience. Um, so, you know, this semester, um, I every semester when I teach, we have tons and tons of conversations about Venmo, which is a really, you know, pet research interest of mine. And I had one student um, who was from the Bronx who said, nobody at home uses Cash App. Nobody. And this student is a person of color. Um, he's, you know, Black and Puerto Rican. And he said, where I come from, people don't use Venmo, period. Um, and when I came to UVA, I suddenly had to get Venmo. And he described it in the same way that he has to kind of code switch between his neighborhood at home and UVA. He also has to do monetary code switching between the transactional community of the Bronx, um, where, you know, Cash App reigns reign supreme, where Cash App targets, you know, his, he and his friends by having Megan the Stallion, you know, give away money on Cash App, um, to UVA, where everyone's doing Venmo or Splitwise, and it's a, a much more, frankly, white communication world. Um, and I think, you know, scholars in my field, such as Dana Boyd, have done a lot of research around the kind of racial segregation of 
of um, social media. Um, so, you know, Dana Boyd writes about like the early history of white flight on MySpace. So when Facebook came out and Facebook was, you know, mostly debuted through elite in, you know, universities um, and was, you know, clean and and had the and didn't have videos playing and you couldn't have gifts all over your profile. Um, many, you know, young white people began to depart MySpace for Facebook. And she did tons of interviews wherein those elite, you know, white people talked about MySpace as being quote unquote ghetto. And there's a lot to unpack there. What does it mean for a social networking site to be quote unquote ghetto? So a big kind of important piece for me as we move forward um, into the world of, you know, variegated niche social media transactional communities is the question not just of inequality, but of segregation, frankly. What happens if we live in a world where some people are all on Cash App and some people are all on Venmo? So I think a key question going forward for the designers of fintech systems is to think about how to create interoperable payments worlds um, that don't reproduce other kinds of inequality and other kinds of, frankly, segregation. Lana, really unique perspectives. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. I had a great time. Communities, imagined or otherwise, give people a sense of meaning. And where communities are chosen and not inherited or imposed, they can tell you something about the person, whom they either want or need to associate with, and what kinds of ideas they might be exposed to, or particular insight or even sensitivities they may have that others outside the community may not. Now, social media complicates this, and the way that it does so can have some very interesting regulatory consequences. Like, does the size of a community tell you about how decentralized it may be? And is there something about that community that gives clues as to its governance or lack thereof? My hunch is that these questions, which pop up in policy circles by habit and intuitively, will find a more explicit expression as not only crypto comes under the regulatory microscope, but also as money itself becomes an increasingly personal and expressive context in which communities rise and fall. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.